You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Robert Sapolsky, who is a professor at Stanford University in, gosh, biology, neuroscience, neurosurgery. I mean, you've got a bunch of different affiliations. I just signed up. Right. But also the author of a lot of wonderful books going back quite a few years. The most recent book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And I think it, I mean, it really does build nicely on this one, which came out just a few years ago, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And this builds on, I have a couple more here. I've got this one from way back. It's called why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I think it's the first book of yours that I read. Then there's this collection called The Trouble with Testosterone and, of course, A Primate's Memoir. And this is not a picture of you on the book. (laughs) It's a different primate friend of yours. But welcome, Robert. Thanks for getting all those books. That's terrific. I see my mother has gotten a hold of you and sent souvenir copies. But yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I have to say, I mean, the books are addictive. I mean, it's hard to stop at just one, right? Maybe I didn't have a choice in the matter if we take seriously the claims that you're making in your latest book. And I've interviewed a lot of philosophers who have dabbled in neuroscience, but you're a a neuroscientist or neurobiologist or a biologist that is now making claims in the world of philosophy. And I was wondering, did you think when you were venturing into this world, did you feel somewhat hesitant? Because the the philosophers, they often like to say that it doesn't matter what you can establish in the world of neuroscience, right? All of that is in some ways orthogonal to the ultimate question of free will. I mean, do you think that scientists deserve a place at the table with the philosophers when it comes to issues like free will? Well, in terms of dabbling, I should first note that I normally run screaming away from any philosophers. I'm stupendously uneducated in sort of their world, and I can thank my excellent education and make sure I was never exposed to any of the classic philosophers. The hegemonous, jerky, grandiose thing I'm saying in the book is basically, if you're not a biologist or very informed about it, you can't begin to make sense of the myth that humans are freely acting agents. Quick disclaimer, when I say biology, I don't mean biology in this monomaniacal way, but biology and its interactions with environment, hooray, nature, and nurture, you can't separate them. But think that unless a philosopher is up to date on contemporary science about the biology of human behavior, there's no basis for them (laughs) concluding anything about who we are as a species. Right. And of course, anything you have to say about free will is going to have consequences for jurisprudence, for praise, for blame. And I thought maybe we would start off with where you start off in the book, which is at the level of intent. And so there's been this whole body of research, I guess, I don't know, is there a name for it? But it began with this guy, 
was it Liebet, right? Yes. Benjamin Liebet. And other folks like, I think, Tim Wilson, I don't think you mentioned him, but there are others who have elaborated on this entire line of research. And the point of this line of research is to say that our notion of intention, our notion of action, our notion of what causes us to do things is in some sense an illusion. Could could you talk a bit about this, this entire body of research? And then, of course, is it in fact relevant to the question at hand? Well, it is sort of the somewhat sarcastic thing I wind up saying in the book is you cannot read a paper by any biologist or scientist thinking about free will without somewhere by the second paragraph talking in obligatory tone about the pioneering work of Leibert and sort of, okay, here's what the study was. It was done at UCSF in the early 1980s. You take a subject and you wire them up so you're getting EEGs on their brain, which was state-of-the-art at the time, and all sorts of clocks with massive second sweeps that they're looking at and things monitoring when their muscles begin to contract. And you say to them, like, here's a button. Whenever you feel like it, press the button and do me a favor, glance up at the clock and tell me exactly where it was when you decided to do that, when you formed that intent. And the like earth-shattering finding that came out of that was that about a half second before subjects were saying, that's when I consciously decided I was going to do that. You could already see patterns in the brain waves indicating that the person was going to do that. Oh my God, your brain decided before you did. Your brain knew before you consciously did. And part of the sort of research since then has been taking more up-to-date techniques, functional brain imaging, and essentially doing the same experiment. And you can spot some parts of the brain that like 10 seconds before are already indicating you've decided you're going to do that. And then 10 seconds later, the person says, yeah, 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 I just decided to do that. Oh my God. This experiment all on its own shows there's no free will. It's just a post hoc sort of confabulation and big surprise, all sorts of other people, many of whom are philosophers, have had conniptions over this ever since and incredibly subtle uh, sort of minutia of is there a difference between your brain intending to do something and your brain intending to intend to do something or your brain getting an urge to intend to do something? And sort of where I start off is like, this is incredibly interesting stuff and beautiful science and all of that. And it has squat to do with the question if we have free will or not. And the metaphor I use in there is it's like asking you, to review a movie where all you've seen is the last three minutes of it. Because what none of these thousands of papers, this was like a study in 1983, and there was a paper published a couple of years ago. This probably wasn't its exact title, but something like Libet had no idea what he was talking about. Like 40 plus years later, they're still like trying to argue about your research. That's like immortality for a scientist. And yet I think it's completely irrelevant because it doesn't ask this key question, where did that intent come from? How did that person wind up being the sort of person who could read 
who would see the notice for this psych experiment, who would be interested in going to it, who would show up, who would show up and make a good effort, would come there and do that instead of stealing the grad student's laptop on the way out. Any of these, like, where does intent come from? And the answer to that is it came from what just came before it and what just came before that and before that. And you can't make sense of any of us without seeing everything from, well, what your neurons were doing one second before, exactly what these studies were about, but also what your hormones were doing this morning, what your experiences over the last decade have been, your adolescence, your childhood, how the womb went for you, your genes, the culture you were raised in all. And when you look at all of these biological influences over which we had no control and the deeply intimate way in which they're intertwined with environmental influences over which you had no control, starting with you did not pick the womb you spent nine months in. When you look at sort of all those connections there, there isn't a crack anywhere in there to shoehorn in the notion of free will. Right. And I, and I think your work has dug into all of these different kind of levels and layers of causation that whether it be the stimulus that happens at the moment of decision or the prior experiences that one has that shapes one's intent and preferences. And it seems like most people are completely unaware of the different things that have led them to become the people that they are. What happens when people become more conscious of the different factors that we might call luck that shape them? I mean, what happened? I mean, did you undergo some transformation when, you know, the more you studied biology, the more you studied neuroscience, did this make you look at yourself differently? Well, the sequence was a bit different for me in that I was 14 and going through some sort of adolescent, very angsty period related to all sorts of belief systems I had at that point and was expected to abide by and all of that. And it was all seemed contradictory and I was very, and one night, literally, I woke up at two in the morning and I said, oh, I get it. There's no God and there's no free will and there's no meaning to any of this. And like, I haven't looked back ever since. And all I've done as a scientist is study the nuts and bolts of that. But that struck me then. So, yeah, I've been thinking this way for a long time. I mean, if you really, really logically follow through that we are nothing more or less than biological machines, magnificently complicated ones, blah, blah, etc. And praise and reward and blame and punishment make no sense whatsoever, both intellectually and morally. If you follow through that, the first implication for any of us is stop being self-congratulatory about anything you've done and stop being pissed off or contemptuous, or disinterested, or being feeling entitled to ignore anybody else and who they turned out to be, because neither of you had anything to do with it. And there's something very screwed about a world that is predicated on sort of a myth that it is a just world, which in this case could be translated into a world in which all sorts of people are treated way worse than average 
for reasons they had nothing to do with, while all sorts of other people are treated way better than average, equally so. And not only that, but they're both raised to think that this is like a just logical outcome. Like, this isn't right. Now, I mean, how do you incorporate this in, into your daily life? I mean, sometimes when people ask me, why did you do that? And my immediate reaction is to offer some, <laughs> you know, reason. But when I hesitate, I, I say, well, I have a theory <laughs> about why I did that. But I mean, if, if I said to you, like, Robert, why'd you write this book? I mean, you're not going to say, well, I wrote this book because Moses escaped from Egypt. <laughs> 6,000 years ago or whatever. I mean, you're going to probably give me something that's a little bit more proximate, but that would be in some sense incomplete and perhaps mendacious, right? If you said, well, I wrote it because I wanted to help the world to understand <laughs> intent and become more sympathetic towards people with disabilities and problems. Which would be like a very superficial self-congratulatory explanation and like not getting back to Moses, but because I was raised in a certain type of culture that emphasized a certain sort of striving, but had enough ambiguities about my feelings for my parents that I did X instead of the opposite X. And because my temperamental makeup based on my neurochemistry causes me to be bad at this and thus feel a terrible need to overcompensate with that. And because I had an intestinal bug the morning I decided, well, damn, I'll spend the next five years on this book. Okay, I don't really think that way most of the time. The philosopher John Searles at Berkeley has this really funny shtick about if you're a determinist, if you really believe this stuff, like you go into a restaurant and the waiter comes up and says, well, what would you like to order? And you say, well, I'm a determinist, so I'm just going to lean back here and see what I wind up ordering. That there's a biological machine that with enough acceptance of its dominance you could observe from afar. And obviously it doesn't work that way. I mean, that being said, for more than half a century, it has been intellectually and morally clear to me that you cannot blame or praise anyone for anything they do. And it's unjust and hatred. Hating a person makes as little sense as hating a tornado. And and I'm a flaming hypocrite because I could manage actually thinking and feeling that way maybe once every four weeks or so because I'm a person of my place and time. So I have my first emotional responses and then I have usually confirmatory second and third emotional responses. And if it's something that really matters, I try to force myself to then go through you know, that's not really justified to feel that way. Think through how things got to this way. And so every now and then I'm able to actually do that, which among other things means I could have spent five years writing this book and I ignore most of what's in there because it's really hard. But nonetheless, it's like the morally and intellectually only acceptable way to view life because all any of us are is the outcome of just utterly random luck over which we had no control. Now, it's hard not to get the sense when reading the book that you instinctively want to blame the blamers, right? So the people who are reveling in, say, punishing malefactors, right? And, uh, you know, you're making a plea to people to kind of not do this. But in a sense, I mean, don't they have just as little capacity to stop 
blaming the malefactors as the malefactors have with respect to being malefactors? Oh, absolutely. Which is why at moments like that, when I see some barbarian advocating some horrible, punitive, vicious, dripping with viscera sort of thing to do to some poor bastard or any such scenario like that, I got to remind myself something that is a very, very reliable way of getting primate brains to release the neurotransmitter dopamine and a sense of reward and good feeling and uh, is to get to punish someone, to get to punish someone when you feel in the right. That's an incredibly strong thing in us. So yeah, that's a feature of how we're wired. Culture comes in, we can feel a sense of like righteous justice being served by locking away somebody for life without parole, rather than in like a town square, like using pincers to take out their eyes and then burn them in front of everyone, are shifting standards. But yeah, that's a basic piece of our wiring also. And it's no surprise that people who have a more aggressive, punitive, hierarchical view about the world are more likely to have had crappy childhoods in certain ways, are more likely to have autonomic systems that respond to novelty in certain... Yeah, like that's with any of them. I mean, my, my exercise for the last eight years or so is to try to remember that Donald Trump did not turn out the way he is by chance. He had two nightmare refrigerator parents who were that way because of whatever. And he has spent his whole life having to pay people to pretend that they love him. And like that produces a pretty screwed up, like damaging sort of guy. Yeah. None of us got here by chance. Well, look, I mean, one of the points you make is that the question of determinism, I mean, there are philosophers who are willing to accept determinism, but will continue to assign responsibility and praise and blame even in the presence of determinism, right? These are the compatibilist folks. And I think you, you take them on, but you also take on the folks who then try to bring in things like unpredictability or randomness and say that that necessarily leads to evidence of free will, which you can test. Yeah. I spend six chapters in the book going through like the world of people who say, ooh, we get our free will from quantum indeterminacy. We get our free will from emergent complexity. We get our free will from chaoticism. Those are three totally cool areas and they're amazing and all that. But that's not where you can get free will from. And the models they put up always like require at some point things to work very differently from how they actually do. But you're right, the main sort of people I'm, I'm being cranky about are by polls, the more than 90% of philosophers who call, call themselves free will compatibilists, which is to say they're willing to admit there's things like atoms and molecules and we're made of that stuff and it's a deterministic world Yet somehow, here's the magical little split in the road where nonetheless, you can pull something out of the hat that is completely free of everything we know about the laws of the universe. And like I sarcastically in the book say that basically every 
paper or book written by these people can be reduced to three sentences. Uh, sentence number one, wow, neuroscience has been finding out all sorts of cool stuff about the brain. Sentence number two, wow, some of these things you're finding out challenge our very notion of agency and free will and our individualism and can force us to rethink everything about culpability. And Sentence number three, nah, not really. And somewhere between sentence two and three, there's always some like massive misinterpretation, as you allude to. For example, thinking that deterministic systems that are unpredictable are actually not deterministic, which is not the case. Or making a basic mistake that when you get some fancy emergent property that comes out of a complex system of simple building blocks, at that point, magically, the building blocks get a whole lot smarter than they were beforehand. Suddenly, your neurons can do stuff that neurons don't normally do and neurons can't do. That at every one of these junctures, um, compatibilists have to make this kind of magical leap where somehow you can still have a little man or a woman inside your head at a control panel who like, yeah, they, they read up on what the New York Times says about neuroscientists, say they just discovered this or that and tries to remember it. And sometimes they get a little like forgetful with it because they didn't get enough sleep last night. And they're the ones at the control panel up there. At the end of the day, somehow there's a you, there's a me that somehow is separate of all of that stuff. And it's just not there. Now, you've gotten involved in the criminal justice system as an expert witness. In the book, you recount how things like epilepsy, how the way we view epilepsy has changed over time and how we view schizophrenia as has evolved over time. And as we begin to understand the, the biological causes of these disorders, we've withdrawn the negative judgments, moral judgments that, that we've attached either to the folks with these disorders or their parents. And do you see this sort of this as the scope of causal explanation for these sorts of quote behavior, these sort of things that can lead to bad behaviors or harmful behaviors? Do you see this as expanding? I mean, do we, do you, you, you talk about sort of the PFC. I mean, we're learning more and more about what we might think of as self-control and the factors that, that lead to that. And you mentioned, I think, traumatic brain injuries. We hear about football players who, remember this guy, Aaron Hernandez, who was guilty of murder and apparently had the brain injuries when they did the autopsy on him. Do you see the judicial system responding to what we're learning about neuroscience? Oh, at a glacial pace and... Like what I've, I've worked with a bunch of public defender offices who were defending some guy who killed somebody and some guy with a history where this guy didn't have a chance by the time he was a second trimester fetus and, and trying to explain to a jury, you would have had the exact same nervous system as this guy if you had experienced all of that. And in that five second gap where you had to make that decision, you would have done the exact same thing. And showing that, like I've worked on 13 cases and we've emphatically lost 11 of them, which I think turns out to count as a good batting average for public defenders. 
And you look at, you know, maybe half the states in this country, you look at someone who has had significant damage to their frontal cortex, and especially what you refer to the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and where that's admissible evidence in a courtroom that this has something to do with why this person is a damaged machine out of control. And like, that's pretty horrifying that it's only about half the courts that could do that. And when you look at it, depending on the study, 25 to 75% of the people on death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. Whoa, something's kind of interesting about that there in a world in which courtrooms use words like evil and soul. But it's this overall like arc of history, like, yeah, yeah, only half the states do that, and like public defenders lose most of their cases and all that stuff, and this is discouraging as hell. And somebody becomes an amazing cardiothoracic surgeon and just as egregiously decides this means they're a better person who's more deserving of consideration of their needs in life. And, you know, it's a real uphill battle, but yeah, we're making some progress. You and I, I bet in your like personal life, you're as sensible as you seem to be. And like you listen to NPR or stuff like that. And you and I being the exact same people we are, if we were living 400 years ago and we saw somebody have a grand mal seizure, we would know what was going on. That person was demonically possessed and they asked for it. And we would say, well, that sucks. And they've got great kids who are going to be like, but we got to burn them at the stake because that's the way the world works. And that would have seemed intuitively obvious to us at the time. And now 400 years later, we figured out things work differently. And we are able to have a world in which you can subtract out responsibility from somebody who's got screwy potassium channels in their brain and thus has a seizure disorder. And not only has the roof not collapsed, the world has become more humane. And in my own lifetime, the exact same transition when I was in school, if you had a kid there who just couldn't quite learn how to read and their spelling, they simply could not do that. And they were lazy and unmotivated or distractible or whatever. And then we learned, oh, no, it's not that. There's something screwy with like layer two of this part of their temporal lobe cortex. or whatever. And they've got this thing called dyslexia because they reverse letters in there. And no, they're not lazy. And not only was this wonderful, humane in terms of, you don't say these kids are lazy anymore and that they're unmotivated. Wow, it's a better planet that we figured out this is why they're not learning how to read. But also by learning the nuts and bolts of that, we learn better how people with dyslexia can read. Wow, we've subtracted responsibility out of that entirely. And not only are we better at teaching people how to read who happen to have that kind of brain, it's a nicer planet because we don't tell them they're lazy. And this in a billion other ways. Every time we find out a gene variant relevant to obesity, every time we find a gene variant relevant to getting great SAT scores or a particular environment, all of those, you know, it becomes a much nicer place to live if people aren't 
getting punished or free rides for stuff they had no control over. Now, do we often confuse damaged with maybe mismatch, right? So you talk a lot about the stress response, and there are a lot of responses that we have that come from the environment in which we're shaped. And they presumably would continue to be optimal if that environment stayed the same, right? So when you experience traumatic brain injury, I mean, that is damage, right? But if you are raised in an environment of scarcity, let's say, and you behave certain ways, or you are raised in an environment of neglect or abuse or are exposed to violence and and hostility, you develop certain ways of behaving. And those presumably only become maladaptive when you move into a different environment. Do we sometimes get these things confused? And is there a reason why we might want to think about them differently? Because that would maybe lead us to think about mitigation differently? Oh, absolutely. And God help me, but we're circling around concepts like cultural relativism and stuff. But if you grow up in some sort of hellhole where you are constantly being threatened and the only response is to watch your back 24-7 and always get the first stab in there first, and now you've got like your internship in your law firm or something because your circumstances have changed, but you tend to view very subtle, gray zone, mild things on the part of people around you as threatening. Yeah, it was a very logical thing that your brain developed that way. And, you know, we developed the kind of world where somebody can now be in a different setting or somebody who's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were hunter-gatherers. And now, because you got westernized, you can eat Fritos every day and you got a metabolism that mismatches. Yeah, that's exactly the case. What we often view as a brain distorted by adversity early in life is a brain that was doing exactly what it should be doing for preparing for a world in which there was going to be nothing but that adversity. And it's only when you put someone in a different setting that you see the dramatic mismatch there. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that in some senses I'm I'm damaged. I mean, I grew up in a loving household, right? And didn't really want for anything. But man, if you threw me into a Mad Max world or Rikers Island or someplace or a toxic workplace, I mean, I'm severely disadvantaged, right? I mean, people would say, what's wrong with that guy? He doesn't know what he needs to know in order to survive in that environment. Exactly. And like you would have that terrible disadvantage if fate would put you in a maximum security prison because you'd be completely unprepared because of all the damaged things you were brought up in childhood, being taught things like love is a reliable emotion and people can be trusted and all sorts of stuff like that, which just ain't true in a world like that. Yeah. It's not by chance that all of us turned out to have the things that we're good at or the things that we're vulnerable about and our foibles and our quirks and our idiosyncrasies and our ways in which we're great in one setting and a disaster in others. You know, none of this is by chance. Now, look, some people who would disbelieve in free will would become fatalistic, right? And would say, well, there's really no point in me trying to figure out how to make the world a better place. And you have certainly not fallen into fatalism. I mean, you have all sorts of ideas for 
improving the world. So this is not to say that we cannot make interventions that will affect outcomes, right? And that we cannot do things to change people. Oh, absolutely. And so why is it that punishment and blame aren't as effective perhaps as people believe them to be, right? So if you strip out the retributive nature of these things and view them just as environmental signals that will lead to perhaps behavioral change, wouldn't it make sense to, to retain them? In certain circumstances, in a purely instrumental way, if that makes somebody less likely to do unpalatable thing X and it doesn't have the following 11 different bad consequences as a result of you deciding that's okay to do, that's okay to do. And in the same way, it's good at various points to pat someone on the head and say, wow, that's great. You really worked hard on that because that's known scientifically. Carol Dweck here at the at Department of Psychology showing all the ways in which that makes for more subsequent motivation. And that's a good thing to do now and then in the right settings, as long as that doesn't produce 11 different bad consequences downstream, like the person thinking they're thus entitled to better health care, or thinking that somebody who didn't work that hard is a less worthy human or anything. Yeah, those are instruments that are absolutely effective in this completely non-preachy sort of way and do the absolute minimum of that needed for that to be like instrumentally effective and don't think it means anything more than that. And like that's a far more effective way of the world turning out. In terms of like you bringing up like one of the biggest temptations for people who say, I believe in free will, parentheses, I really, really am resistant to the idea emotionally, yes, there isn't, etc., is the notion that believing there is no such thing as free will is believing that nothing can change. And that's the most, the difference between determinism and sort of pilgrim, predeterministic Calvinism, something. All you need to do to see that things can change is see that there exist out there are people who are ex-white supremacists and who like dress to cover up their swastika tattoos and work for organizations trying to decrease hate. And all you have to do is look at somebody who was brought up in a certain sort of environment and against all logic, now decades later, they are hateful or Yeah, we're capable of incredible change, but all you have to understand there is we don't choose to change. We have been sculpted by our circumstances so that we are changed by certain types of present tense circumstances. I mean, at some point, I read somebody who had this whole eloquent take on how a public health quarantine model for infectious disease, how that would work in the context of dangerous criminals. And it made total sense to me and it explained one thing that I thought was a stumbling block in there. And as a result, I changed. I have more faith in that as a model because it solved that one, like, um, loophole that I thought as that as an explain. Yeah, I changed this. I sure didn't decide, wow, today I'm going to go seek an explanation for this thing that I still see as being a problem with this model. Oh, circumstances made me the sort of person where I would be changed 
made me the sort of circumstances, the sort of person where I'd be interested in the subject and I'd want to read about it. And I would have been taught how to read and I wouldn't be brain damaged because I didn't have enough protein in my diet growing up and where I was capable of changing my views about things and thinking that was a virtue instead of a sign of weakness, blah, blah, etc. I didn't change. You know, I became the sort of person where I was changed by that circumstance. And the greatest way of appreciating that is when you see three people undergo the exact same circumstance and the things that made them who they are make them react completely differently. You, I don't know, you watch some inspirational movie, Hotel Rwanda, that, that guy who heroically saved a thousand plus people during the Rwandan genocide. And like, it is so moving and inspirational and one person can make a difference, all of that. And like, I come out of a movie like that saying, oh, that's totally amazing. And I feel inspired with the efficacy that this person had. And maybe I'll go send $5 to Amnesty International tomorrow. And some other person sitting next to me comes at him and says, oh my God, that's the most amazing cinematography. And some other person comes out and says, oh my God, I can't believe how emotionally manipulative that was with that cheesy stuff. And I go read more about the Rwandan genocide. And the second person is more respectful of this school of cinematography. And the third person says, okay, don't go to that movie. I thought it was like cheesy and manipulative. How do we wind up being the sorts of people where we would be changed in those three different ways? That wasn't by chance in response to the same stimulus. Now, you study the impact of environment and stimuli on behavior. You do it in, in a couple of ways. One is within a short period of time, right? So, you know, you prime people or you perhaps even give them some kind of hormonal <laughs> injection or something. And the other is to do observational studies over the long haul. It's very difficult to do experiments over the long haul. And so in addition to looking at things like socioeconomic status and other kinds of experiences, you can also look at things like exposure to religion or exposure to belief in free will. And so you, you reference some of these studies, right? The experimental ones where you, you prime folks with the notion of free will or of religion. And then these observational studies where you look to see how religious people are or how much they believe in free will, which of course are not the same thing. What can we learn from those studies? Is there an instrumental value to whether it's belief in free will or religiosity? Yeah. And this is addressing the other uh, sort of bugaboo with this. Oh my God, are you saying nothing can ever change? Oh my God, if people stop believing in free will, they're going to run amok. This will be this lawless, violent society without any responsibility. All of that, this would be horrible. And you refer to a small literature where you take people who say they believe in free will, and they read a very well-written persuasive paragraph by someone who says, no, 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 we're just our neurons, or someone else who with a paragraph saying, no, 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 we're so much more than just our neurons. And then you let them play some like economic game on screen with somebody. And if you've been primed to think we have less free will, you cheat more. There you go. That's the experimental backbone of we're going to run amok if this happens. And what you see is that's a literature which, A, 
has not always been replicated. And then you see something much more interesting. Don't get a volunteer who believes in free will. Get somebody coming in who says, I haven't believed in free will for years and years. And what you see is they are just as ethical in their behavior as the person who believes we should have responsibility for our actions, all of that. In the same way, like if you're an atheist, you get, oh my God, how can people be moral if they don't think there's a God? And you get people who are stridently atheistic and they are exactly as ethical and very ethical in their behavior as are people who are stridently orthodox in their religiosity and think that there are moral imperatives that come out of it. What's that about? Because they actually have something in common, and that's exactly where this becomes prescriptive or instrumental. If you've spent a hell of a long time thinking about where does human goodness come from and the human capacity to do evil and where is meaning from and what does pain mean and all of that, and it basically doesn't matter if you conclude there's a loving God or if you conclude it's an indifferent universe or if you conclude I am the captain of my fate, or if you conclude we're just biological machines, if you've done that hard work, you are going to come out much, much more ethical than average. It's the people who say whatever in between where they are most easily malleable to that. And you look at like all the classic studies after World War II, ooh, who are the people who put their lives at risk to like save Jews and Roma people up in their attics and they'd be dead in a second if they were discovered. And what the study showed was highly religious or highly non-religious people who had been brought up seeing that action is a moral imperative. You don't just feel bad about things, you act upon it people at the two extremes who were raised to think this isn't going to be easy, but here's what you do. So I'm not worried in the slightest that if we build a culture saying people are not responsible for if they turned out to be bad at this or irritating at that or damaging at this or really good at this other thing, that's not how it really worked. We will have a world in which people see as much of an imperative to be like a decent moral human because we're just made up of neurons that can feel pain, as if we're brought up with the notion that there is a loving, forgiving, punitive God who can throw you into hell. Now, you paint a vision of what this world might look like, and it looks a lot like Norway, right? So you, you've got um, this guy Brevik, who is a mass murderer, right? Just a horrible person, if I'm allowed to call people horrible after reading your book. I mean, this guy was a really really harmful person. And yet he, he gets, what, 21 years of punishment, right? And gets to get his college degree and he gets a nice multi-bedroom apartment and they pay people to come and keep him company and stuff. And yet, of course, Norway has a very low crime rate. Now, look, there's no argument in the book that there's a causal relationship here. I mean, there are so many other things going on. But what's interesting is that the reason why, I mean, you've asked the people in Norway who seem to be okay with this, why are you okay with this? Like, why aren't you drawing and quartering this guy? They're not going to say, well, it was his neurons that made him do it, right? I mean, they will talk about mercy and they will talk about forgiveness and they, and they will talk about rehabilitation. So, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a Norway that is built on determinism, whereas it's easy for me to believe in a Norway built on 
the concept of mercy. Yeah, and even the ones who say, well, I mean, when you read about it, he's a pretty screwed up guy. You know, he's, it's not by chance he wound up that way. Nonetheless, you know, Norway is a century ahead of us in this sort of thinking. They're not 10 centuries ahead of us. They still have a model of people are responsible for their actions. In some ways, they just have a much more informed notion as to what things you do is to make people not do that again. And what it taps into there, sorry for the excitable dog, but what it taps into there is this commonality, whether they behead the guy or put him in a, you know, a suite in a prison with an exercise machine for 21 years, is as long as your society has done the most severe thing to him that your society is willing to do, you will feel like that was an appropriate outcome. And you talk to the family members of his victims in Norway, and they would say things like, yeah, we don't kill people, but the most we do is we lock them away for 21 years, and that guy is going to sit there for 21 years. Yes, society has validated my pain. And even somebody like, oh, what was his name? Trump's attorney general, William Barr. Bar. I was going to call him Burr, Aaron Burr, but that's like the wrong musical or something. And he even once said, what people really want is to just to know that society has taken your victimhood seriously enough to do the thing that they regard as the most punitive thing they're comfortable doing. And that's like a really interesting insight. And Norwegians are just at a very different point. But you're right. Nonetheless, they're still operating on a system where people need to be held responsible for their actions. So, you know, they still have a couple of centuries worth of progress to make in that one, but we've got even more progress to make. But we, like them, don't think that hailstorms are caused by witches anymore and go burn some elderly woman with no teeth. Oh, we've all gotten to that point. We, we recognize that one doesn't have responsibility. They happen to be a century ahead of us. Like, we're pretty good now on, like, don't beat your beast of burden to death. That's not a good thing. But we're not at the point of, like, yeah, 21 years and treat somebody with dignity and you get a recidivism rate that's, like, one-fifth that in the United States. Yeah, they got a ways to go, too. But I think if nothing comes out of my book other than people thinking that, well, I don't know, maybe we should be a little bit more like those folks. I mean, I recognize trying to function with belief that there's no free will whatsoever and you cannot blame or praise or take any pleasure in your accomplishments, blah, blah, is like, how in hell are you going to do that? That's absurd. I can do that 1% of the time. But if it gets people to be that way, you know, half a percent more than the way they are that way now, this is a good thing because we've done it over and over of being able to subtract blame out of these things. And, you know, it not only doesn't have the roof fall in, it becomes a better world. Well, Robert, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called Determined. I think your next experiment might be to do an A-B test where you take a treatment group and expose them to your book and have a control group that doesn't. And at least in my experience, as I learn more and more about the biological determinants of, of behavior and neuroscience, is that it cultivates a much greater 
empathy in me for other people. But for myself, <laughs> it makes me just double down and like Dr. Johnson, kick the rock and say, I, I refute it thus and double down on trying to become a better person. And I think perhaps that was partially your intent. So well done. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me. Nonetheless, I can guarantee you I'm hearing from all sorts of emailers who are responses saying, you're full of it. Mm. Yeah, right. And often much less politely than that. So I'm glad that's your response. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Look forward to the next book. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.